Let's pray. God, I thank you for uh, this morning, and um, I thank you for just uh, sovereignly calling us together um, to celebrate, to worship. Um, all around the world, this day is celebrated as Palm Sunday, Jesus, where you entered Jerusalem, where you were coming into your final week of, um, of paying for our, our sin on the cross. And uh, we worship you. We thank you for your gift of grace and forgiveness and love, and we thank you for Uh, The cross that reminds us that for those of us who believe, we have both the demonstration and an assurance that we are right with God by faith in you. What a great gift. And God, I just pray that uh, this morning you would be glorified in the things I say, um, that you would work in my heart and my mind um, and and use uh, the words I say to glorify you, um, and just that this would be an honoring um, moment uh, under your scripture as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've often brought up to you a guy by the name of Augustine, um, who was a uh, pastor, and he was a really, really good pastor. And uh, not only was he a good pastor, but he was really smart at the same time. So uh, we, uh, we pastors who pastor today often feel like we're neither great pastors nor very smart. And uh, so we often go to guys like Augustine uh, to learn from him. And one of the books that he wrote that was so significant is a, is a book called The City of God. And this book is it's a Christian classic, but it's forever long, and it's a very complicated book to read. It's not, it's not necessarily a lot of fun to, to plow through because it's so long. And I've been reading this book for the second time, but I've been reading it for the second time like for 10 years. You know what I mean? Like it's just this massive, complicated book. And, uh, but in the book and in the midst of all the complexity of what he says in this book, He has this simple argument for a philosophy of life and for a philosophy of history and how to look at history of humanity. And he sums it up in a famous sentence. Let me give this sentence to you. He says, two loves have made two cities. Love of self, even to the point of contempt for God, made the earthly city. And love of God, even to the point of contempt for self, made the heavenly city. He narrows down all, all human beings and all of history down to those two loves. Either we as human beings have lived our life for love for self to the contempt of God and building the, he, the, uh, the earthly city, or we love God to the contempt of self to build the heavenly city. Uh, this profound simplicity he traces through All of biblical history, he starts with Cain and Abel, and he talks about how uh, Cain and killing Abel was representative of of humanity, building a culture and society without God and and, and with murder on mind. He, He compared it to Abraham and Lot, to the Israelites and the Egyptians, and even within the Israelites, he argues that 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 there's a faithful remnant within the people of God who genuinely love God, but then the rest of the Israelites love self and idols in contempt of God. He traces it through all of human history that all nations, all cultures have built a city to man. To glorify God, a tower of Babel, if you will, for their own name's sake. But there's always been a faithful remnant who have loved God and who have, who have loved God to the contempt of self. 
The question for you and I, of course, is always, and not only once, but every single day, am I a person who's, who's loving myself to the contempt of God? Am I selfish? Am I working this world? Am I working my life for my own name and my own honor? Or am I loving God and loving God to the contempt of self, loving God in place of my own selfish desires? And I don't know about you, but I struggle with that, don't you? I struggle to desire to build God's city, to build a life and to participate in culture in such a way to where he will get the glory. I struggle to do family in a way that he will get the glory. I struggle to be a pastor to where he will get the glory. Often I find competing allegiances in my heart for myself, see. And we ask ourselves every day, and, and we ask ourselves in this project of coming to church, we're coming to, to church and we're saying, you know what, I've got, to, I've got to rebel against this idea of building a life for my glory, for my own self. And I have to begin to love God to the contempt of self. And of course we ask ourselves, how do I do that? How do I, how do I walk in that? This morning I want to take you in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26 and... As you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to point out the testimony of Paul before Agrippa. Now, Agrippa and his wife Bernice are they're more interested and intrigued by this little Jewish man who has this message about a Messiah. And Paul's been in prison for over two years in Caesarea, and a guy by the name of Felix held him there, and Festus held him there for their own personal reasons. They kind of kept him there and didn't take him to trial. And Agrippa and his wife come to visit a guy by the name of Festus, and, 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 and Festus is like, you got to hear this guy speak. And so with great a plump. They, they come before and they call Paul before them. And Paul does what we've seen Paul already do. He gives his testimony. And he says, this is how I became a Christian. And we've heard that story several times in this, in this, book, in this study on the book of Acts. We heard it in Acts chapter 9. We heard it in Acts chapter 22. And so we're going to hear, we hear the same things being said by Paul in Acts chapter 26. However, every time his testimony is told in Acts, more detail is given to the testimony. It's filled out more of what exactly happened to make him become a Christian. And in this testimony, I want to point out only the parts we haven't covered yet that are added before Agrippa in his testimony. And so I want you to go to Acts chapter 26 and verse 16. We know how Paul became a Christian. He got knocked off of his high horse. How many of y'all have been knocked off your high horse by God before? It is not fun. Can I get an amen? Man, when you're on your high horse of pride, when you're on your high horse of self-righteousness, when you're on your high horse of thinking that you know everything, when you're on your own high horse of taking the place of God, and by God's grace, and sometimes it really hurts, and sometimes the best stuff that God does to us hurts. Can I get an amen? And don't avoid that conviction. And sometimes he knocks us off our high horse, and Paul became a Christian because he got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. And God and Jesus shone a great light among him to show him that he was blind. In fact, blinded him physically to remind him that he was spiritually blind. And in that moment of confrontation, in that moment when Jesus beat up the guy that had been beaten up Christians. I love the fact that Jesus can sometimes beat us up. Although I don't like it when he does it to me. But, but Jesus says something that we haven't heard yet before in the book of Acts in verse 16. Jesus says this to Paul as Paul is knocked down off his high horse. Jesus says, but rise and stand upon your feet. 
For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God." That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, in particular, in verse 18, you see this dualistic thought of darkness and light, Satan and God. Now, that's not to be thought of an absolute dualistic philosophy. That's to be thought of two different ways of going about life, two different ways of living. In the New Testament, light stands for, for living for God. Light stands for walking in the truth of God. Light stands for enjoying a relationship with God and walking with God. Darkness stands for living for sin. Darkness stands for living for the world. Darkness is in contrast to the righteousness of God. You see that? There are two cities. One city is built by man for his own glory. The other city is built for God's glory. One city is love of self. The other city is love of God. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, Jesus has given me this message to lead people from darkness to light, from the city of man to the city of God, from building their own kingdom to participating in building the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And he's telling this. And what he says is fascinating because he says that it is possible for us to leave darkness and come to the light. That it's possible for us to leave our selfish ways And to live for God. And what is the key to living for God and not for self? What is the fundamental thing that makes all the difference in the world to our hearts? Paul goes on to describe, look down at verse 22. He says this. He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here to testify both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is saying that the secret to living for God and not self is not religion. The, the secret to living for God and not self is not a formula or a self-help book. The secret to living for God and not for self is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That it's the risen Christ that comes into people's lives and changes their hearts so that they can be transformed by his presence and by his grace. And when we ask ourselves, how can I today, today, not yesterday, not tomorrow, right now, how can I live For God's glory and not my own, the secret is to open my eyes to the risen Christ and his grace and love for me. And so the rest of this sermon, what I want to do briefly this morning is I want to say, let us open our eyes to the resurrection of Christ in a life-changing way to live for God and not for self. Let us open our eyes so that, so, that we can, so that we can walk and we can begin to build this city of God and, and stop building our own city, our own agenda, 
And and Paul, in particular, I want to focus on verse 18. He gives us several things that we need to open our eyes to so that we can live for God and not for self. And the first thing that we've got to open our eyes to is that forgiveness for our sins happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness for sins happens in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the critical thing. That's the critical thing that opens our eyes is a deep uh, realization that we are forgiven because of what Jesus did in dying for our sins and defeating death. And I believe that all human beings, whether they know it or not, deeply need forgiveness from God. Even before we're aware that we need forgiveness for sins, we really, really need forgiveness for our sins. The world is waiting and hungry and thirsty for forgiveness of their sins. The world is, humanity is broken before a holy God because they're separated from God in their sin and they need the assurance of forgiveness of sins. And what's so powerful is God is saying, I offer to all people, Paul is saying this, I offer to all people forgiveness for their sins. And this is why that's so important and so powerful for our life. The reason why it's powerful is because forgiveness is impossible without justice. Forgiveness is impossible without justice. Do you know that if you offend me, right? Not that you ever would. I'll I'll turn it around. If I offend you, no, I better not do it that way. If you offend me, right? And And I have to forgive you. The only way I can forgive you is if I absorb a scar. If I'm willing to take the scar, because I'll never be the same again after you've offended me. I'll ne- I can never just say, oh, I forgive it. It doesn't affect me. I'm going to move on with my life. I'm just going to forgive and let it go. Do you know that that's impossible? Forgiveness is only possible when you say, I'm not the same because of the offense. I'll never be moved perfectly beyond that abuse, but I'm willing to live with that scar and to love you anyways. I'm going to take the pain. I'm going to take the pain and not try to get rid of it in my bitterness. I'm not going to try to get rid of it in revenge. I'm going to try to not, not make you do something for me or something. I'm just going to, I'm going to absorb it and I'm going to take it. That's, for, that's how God made the world. And do you know that the only way that God can forgive you and I is if he comes into the world and he absorbs our sin on the cross. If he's scarred in our place. Does that make sense? You see, we think that God can just forgive. That God can just look at us and go, yep, you're done. It's good. You're forgiven. But in fact, God has to use justice to bring love. God has to bring uh, the full wrath in order to forgive you and I, to move our penalty of sin. And that's why when we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem, when we celebrate him dying on the cross for our sins, what we're seeing is God himself absorbing, being willing to absorb a scar, to be willing to absorb abuse, being willing to absorb our pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He, was, he died in our place. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. God was saying, I will love you, but my love for you will cost me myself and that's so powerful because that means that God's forgiveness is not shallow or cheap can I get an amen Amen. it's not cheap it's not something he just we're not gonna we're not justified by death it's not like we die and God just says oh yeah you can just come into heaven I'll just forgive you we have to realize I've sinned against the holy God. And God has taken my place and absorbed all my sin. 
When Jesus died on the cross on that Friday, he said, it is finished. The Greek word is telestai. It means paid in full, an accounting term. It means that he took the full price of our sin in our place so that God could love us. You can't separate love from holiness. You can't separate love from justice. He absorbed his own justice so that he could love us. It's holy love. And that's so powerful because it gives us assurance. It gives us security. I can look to Jesus and say, he was holy enough. He took my place. He absorbed the scar. He absorbed my abuse and my rebellion in his place. And when I begin to walk in that, my conscience is cleaned. It's washed. It's it's given assurance in the presence of God. But it's also powerful because as soon as we begin to receive that forgiveness, guess what God calls us to do? To forgive one another. To love one another. Do you know that when I lack forgiveness, I'm walking in sin? When I'm unwilling to carry the burdens of others' offense, I'm not trusting in God's love. God says, do you remember what Jesus said? Love one another. Not not freely, not not as if it's cheap. Love one another because I have loved you to the point of death. Forgive one another. You say, I don't want to build my own city anymore. I don't want to build the city of man. I want to build the city of God. I want to to live for God to the contempt of self. Then you're going to have to forgive. You're going to have to to absorb some stuff, man. You're going to have to be not only broken in yourself in the presence of God, you're going to have to absorb other people's brokenness. And that's a bummer. Amen? Amen? But think about the bummer that is God, a holy God. We've ignored him, and we haven't loved him, and he still is the stronghold of our lives. Forgive one another, and you will build a world that looks like God. Love one another, and you will build a city that glorifies him. But if you fail to offer forgiveness, then you're only building your own city. This is, the, this is the key to marriage. It's the key to, it's the key to church. It's the key to relationships. It's the key to life groups. It's the key to prayer is this idea of forgiveness. In the death of, and resurrection of Jesus is the death of bitterness. In the death and resurrection of Jesus is the death of selfishness. In the death and resurrection of Jesus is the death of self. Finally, I am dead. I am dead died in Christ and I'm alive to God because he has forgiven me. Praise God for his forgiveness. The death of death and the death of Jesus is forgiveness. The second thing though is not only forgiveness for sin but freedom from sin. Not only does God say the penalty is paid, but God offers a power to move beyond our bondage and our brokenness. God offers a power so that the sin of this world will no longer trip us up and we can begin to mature and be transformed in his grace. Again, pointing out verse 18, Jesus says to the Apostle Paul that he will open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. I kind of put In my Bible, forgiveness by that. But also, and from the power of Satan to God. I put in that freedom from sin. 
Because God's grace offered to us at the foot of the cross is a daily living power and source of resource so that we can move from the power of Satan to the power of God. So that we can be transformed by his daily grace for our life. So he's moving us from faith to faith, from grace to grace. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his community. He's given us the word. And from that flow, these resources of grace so that we can go through the slow, everybody say slow, slow process of change. Power. Jesus offers freedom and power from our sins. To supplement this idea with another passage, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll be up on the screen, though, as well. But a famous passage, Ephesians chapter 2 is where I'm going. Ephesians chapter 2. And famously, eloquently, the Apostle Paul outlines the powers that destroy us. And the powers that God delivers us from in the power of his grace. And I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Paul says uh, to the church in Ephesus. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, great conjunction, praise God for that conjunction, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him there's our resurrection and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus famously this passage outlines the three sources of power of darkness and Satan that comes across that that we encounter every single day the first thing is the world You see that in verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. We are under the influence of this world. What does Paul mean by the world? Paul means the administration of human beings to, to attempt to build society and culture without respect to the glory of God. It's the attempt by human beings, even the conspiracy, to build a great world, to build great and growing worlds without honoring and glorifying God as the creator of us as culture builders. And when you and I walk in any society, in it, no matter how civilized, no matter how sophisticated, all societies are trying to build their culture, their village, their city, their town, their homes without respect to God. We call this at Crosspoint, we call it practical atheism. You can come to church and even agree with doctrine statements, but you might be walking in the course of this world, which is without a reference of thinking that respects God. And that leads us to building our own world. How can we be delivered from the administration of this world? By being made alive with Christ, right? Here's the second influence that brings us down and puts us under the influence of Satan. The second influence is Satan himself. It says, following the prince of the power of the air. Satan is more crafty than you and I. Did you know that? He's really smart. He's been deceiving human beings for thousands and thousands of years going back to Adam and Eve. 
He uses schemes and devices to divide you from God, to divide you from each other, to divide you from nature, to divide you from yourself. Satan is always scheming to divide us and tempt us and throw things in our path so that we'll do things that are contrary to the way that God has defined life. And he's always tempting us, isn't he? But in Christ, we have a way out of temptation. In Christ, we are delivered from the evil one. In Christ, we have a power in his resurrection to live a new life, not under the influence of Satan. But of course, the only problem now is that if we, you and I, fall into darkness, we can't always blame Satan. Can I get an amen? And the third influence is our own flesh, he says. Because our heart, there's a part of us spiritually that has a magnet that is attracted to Satan. There's a part of us that wants to conspire and wants to be deceived and wants to deceive. And the great truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the great thing we celebrate is that in his great name, we have resources to overcome ourself, to overcome Satan, and to overcome the world. And when we use Christ and we use these resources that he gives to us, then we can find freedom in Christ. We can find freedom from sin. Romans chapter 6 gives us some kind of practical uh, advice on this very point of moving beyond the power and being freed from sin. Where Romans chapter 6 verses 9 through 13, the Apostle Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin has no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace." Paul is saying that God has provided us a power so that we can say to ourselves, we can talk to ourselves. Yeah, we Christians, we talk to ourselves. Can I get an amen? And you know what we do? We wake up and we say, today, I am not alive to sin. I'm alive to God. We say every single day, because of Jesus, I can present my body to God for righteousness, not for unrighteousness. I can talk back to myself. We call that meditation when we talk to ourselves. And what we're meditating is we're rehearsing the gospel and we're saying, by God's grace, in the Bible, by in Christ, I can be dead to sin and not alive to God. So you got to talk back to your flesh. you got to say, don't do that. You don't have to do that. You're not obligated to sin. You're not obligated to walk in darkness. You're not obligated to do these things that destroy your life. Jesus has has purchased you. Jesus has given you his resurrection. Jesus has given you every reason to believe that you can move beyond your bondages, your addictions, your attitudes, the things that are destroying you, your pride. You have everything in Christ you need to have victory in Christ. You have a victorious Christian life waiting you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, consider yourself alive. Because you are. And sometimes we don't walk like we are. You know what I'm saying? We get delivered from prison, but we're still wearing inmates' clothes, right? We get delivered from Satan as our boss, but we're still calling him up, asking him for wages. We get delivered from things, and then we act like that, that, that we're not delivered. We start acting like we're in bondage when God looks at us and goes, dude, you're as free as can be. I don't know if he says dude, okay? I'm just saying. 
He does. Thank you, Greg. I'm trying to watch my language these days. Uh, But you see what I'm saying. We have power in the resurrection of Christ to begin to grow and mature. Here's the final thing. Not only do we have forgiveness of sins and freedom from sin, but finally, we have a future without sin in the resurrection of Jesus. This perhaps is the most exciting. I love this. I just love preaching this part. Because basically in the resurrection of Jesus, we have the hope and the guarantee of our own resurrection. Going back to Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, he says that we have received the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What does he mean by a place? He means the kingdom of God that's coming. He means an everlasting eternal life with God without sin. He means a time and a a period of place when Jesus will come back. He will do away with this course of this world. He will do away with this sinful world. He'll do away with sorrow and pain and sickness and all the stuff that binds us. He'll deliver us from our own sinful bondage completely. We will be completely sanctified in the kingdom of God as we... Walk in the promise of the resurrection of Jesus. And that gives us great hope. I love that promise. Because this world is it's so painful, isn't it? And aren't you glad it's not going to last forever? Our bodies are wasting away. And every single day, every time I get a new gray hair on my full beard, it reminds me my time is running out. The clock is ticking, and the clock is ticking for a place. It's moving with a beat to a location, and that location is at the feet of Jesus. And I'm going to live in heaven with him. And heaven is not a consolation. It's not like second prize compared to this world. Heaven is the goal. The kingdom is the ultimate prize of our faith. To pass from this life to the next life is the greatest moment in our life. To be translated from this world to his world is the greatest thing that happens to a human being, especially if we have peace with God and Jesus Christ. And it is those who walk in future assurance, it's those who walk in light of a future without sin who make the greatest difference in this world. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, it's a great book, Highly recommend it. In chapter 10, paragraph 1, I have a source here. He says, quote, and listen to this. This is so good. He says, quote, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were, the, were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And Paul says, "My Agrippa, my ministry is to tell people that in Jesus Christ they have a place that will be waiting for them. 
a kingdom they will live in. And when people have that mind frame, you know what it allows us to do in this world? Serve. It allows us to not be malcontents. It allows us not to be focused on the accumulation of things. It allows us not to be focused on results or good outcomes. We can focus not on good outcomes, but God's outcomes every day, no matter what they are. We can praise God in the good times and in the bad. When we're suffering, we can praise God. When we're successful, we can praise God. When we're broken by our own sin and failure, we can praise God. When we're having victory over sin, we can praise God because we are living for a future without sin. And when I begin to walk in that identity, guess what I begin to do? Overcome sin. I begin to walk now like I will be. It gives me an already not yet perspective. Because that's what Jesus has done. Isn't he good? This is good news. It's the death of death and the death and resurrection of Jesus that we're talking about. And I'm happy to communicate this to you. You are forgiven in Christ if you believe. You are free from your bondages today. You are not obligated in Christ to sin today. You, you, are, you are free to walk in light of a future without sin. Open your eyes to this new life in Christ. Let us pray. God, I thank you for your grace uh, to preach a second service. It is your grace that gives us the energy to love what we're talking about and to listen and to open our eyes and our minds to the truth that you give to us in this, in the person of Jesus and in a worldview that is the cross. God, I pray that you would give us a deep, robust experience in forgiveness. I pray that you would give us regular testimonies of freedom. And I pray that you might give us the future assurance of a kingdom that's not built with human hands. If you're not a Christian today, I want to invite you to believe in Christ. The ways a person becomes a Christian is not by church water or a priest or a special uh, altar. The way to become a Christian is to individually and personally respond to Jesus yourself and to say to him, I have sinned. And I believed you took the abuse of my sin on the cross. That you were pierced for my transgressions. That you carried the iniquities of us all. I am broken, Jesus, and I need your forgiveness. I believe you are giving it to me now. And I believe you're alive to give me new life. So come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. And if you can walk in that great gospel... You will be saved. You will be changed. You won't be, cha- you won't be made perfect. Believe me, anybody here who's a Christian knows that you're not made perfect. But you're given a perfect God. A perfect Savior. With perfect love. And that perfect love will cast fear out of your life. Walk in that and believe in him. For the rest of us, may God give us the grace to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.